For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Cannibals. Vampires. Murderers who feed on humans. There were so many murders in this case. They were so violent and gruesome. Driven by desires and delusions. You want to know what it is to be a vampire? Where did their shocking crimes fit into those considered most evil? A scale exists to measure the darkest corners of human behavior. From impulse killings to madness-fueled violence. Calculated acts of cruelty, torture, and brutality. Forensics now reveals those among us who are most evil. Cannibals. Vampires. Their acts have been called the ultimate taboo. They not only murder, but consume victims as well. Why do some killers cross the line into evil's darkest corners? In Germany, Armin Maivez prowls internet chat rooms, hunting for a dinner guest. He eats the victim. Delusions tell Richard Chase he must consume human organs and blood or he will die. His rampage claims six. In Florida, Rod Farrell believes he is a vampire. His twisted fantasy takes the lives of two people. Fueled by delusion, fantasy, and even a desire for pleasure, these killers are propelled to commit evil acts. But not all killers are equal. What separates these killers and the fantasies that propel them? Now there is a scale with 22 levels that decodes a killer's motive, method, and mind. The more heinous the crime and the more rational the perpetrator, the higher the criminal is placed on the scale. Creator of the scale, Dr. Michael Stone, forensic psychiatrist from Columbia University. Cannibalism and consuming human blood, that is vampirism, awaken our most ancient and intense fears. These are not simple crimes of murder or violence. Rather, they are acts that violate all the boundaries between right and wrong that we have established as a society. What is the source of these violent predators' darkest desires? And what causes some of them to be overtaken by madness and others to torture and kill for pleasure? To delve into the world of cannibalism, Dr. Stone starts with one of the world's most recent and notorious cases. The case of Armin Maivas.
2001, Germany. 41-year-old Armin Maivez invites a man he met on the internet over for dinner. The meal will consist of red wine, fruit, and the main course will be the guest himself. Maivez kills and dissects the victim. For the next few months, he will slowly consume him. Each meal is prepared with intricate care, savoring every bite with a carefully chosen wine. Why would someone not only kill, but also consume their victim? What is the motivation for such a grisly crime? Cannibalism has always been considered the most gruesome of crimes, for it is a crime that transgresses against the most sacred rules for living as civilized creatures, that we do not tear the flesh, devour, and annihilate another human being. 1969. Armin Maivez is a happy child. He spends his days playing with his two half-brothers and building model houses. But Armin's world crumbles. Shortly after his sixth birthday, his father leaves home, never to return. That same year, Armin's half-brothers abandon him to live with their biological father. Armin is devastated. He is left to live alone with his domineering mother. His days are now filled with joyless, menial tasks. Under the watchful eye of his mother, Mivas is given endless chores around their dilapidated house. His mother refuses to let him play with neighborhood children. Though it is the 1970s, Armin is forced to wear traditional lederhosen to school. He is mocked by his classmates. Isolated, with few friends, Armin begins to develop disturbing habits. He spends hours dissecting dolls, taking them apart piece by piece. Grilling their body parts. Armin is fascinated with the human body. He creates an imaginary brother. He begins to have fantasies about dissecting a body and eating human flesh. With time, his secret fantasy grows in intensity. Mives gives a picture of violent desires, stretching back to his earliest years, the control and abuse exhibited by his mother, and his detachment from the world after his father and brother leave push him toward an obsession with the only world where he can be happy, the world of fantasy. As an adult, Mivas's mother continues her controlling and abusive presence. She chaperones him on dates and insists on attending social functions as his escort. He is unable to form lasting relationships. His isolation drives him to look for companionship on the internet. His childhood fantasies of cannibalism take on a sexual tinge. 
He spends hours trolling the internet, looking for a young, physically fit man that he can not only have sex with, but also eat. In 1999, when Mavis is 37, his mother dies. Free from his mother's controlling grip, his focus turns from a life of servitude to one of self-gratification. He posts advertisements on the internet for victims willing to let him eat them. The email address, anthropophagus, an ancient Greek term for cannibal. Mive's fantasy world becomes all the more bizarre thanks to his isolation from his peers and his inability to form close attachments to anyone. To deal with this overwhelming loss, Mive seeks to restore that loss symbolically by taking into himself another person. Two years after beginning his quest, Mive's fantasy starts to become reality. 43-year-old Bern Brandes answers an internet posting. He offers himself to Mives with the simple phrase, I hope you find me tasty. On March 9th, 2001, Bern Brandes visits Armin Mives' house. He is a willing participant in Mives' fantasy. Mives feeds him a cocktail of sleeping pills and cough medicine. Brandes slips into unconsciousness. For Mives, it is the pinnacle of a lifelong fantasy. After a kiss, he stabs Brandes to death. He drains the blood out of the lifeless body. He intricately dissects and freezes 44 pounds of flesh, enough to satisfy his craving for several months. After he finishes Brandes' body, he goes looking for new victims. Five months after killing Brandes, Mives posts a new ad. He wants another willing victim. He boasts of the slaughter on an internet chat room. A user contacts police. Mives is arrested. Police find the remains of Brandes and a videotape depicting the murder. The video is so disturbing, investigators seek psychological counseling for themselves. Mives is eventually convicted of murder and in May of 2006 is sentenced to life in prison. Dr. Stone considers the crimes of Armin Mives. Mives displays the signs of many fantasy-based egotistical killers. His lack of psychopathic tendencies and his rational demeanor before, during, and after the murder is what sets him apart. The bloodletting and dissection of Brandes would lead me to place Mives at level 14, but because the motivation of his crime is not to torture and mutilate his victim, and the fact that he sedated Brandes before killing to avoid inflicting pain, I place him lower on the scale. For these reasons, I would classify Armin Mives at level seven, highly egocentric murderers who kill for narcissistic reasons.
What are the roots of Armin Mivas's desire to consume human flesh? Mivas tells a courtroom that the impulse to eat another human being dates back to being abandoned by his father and brothers as a child. Is it possible that memories of traumatic events can be an ingredient in the twisted crimes of killers like Armin Mivas? Science is now exploring the impact emotionally charged memories have on the brain. How can certain memories become more ingrained in the brain than others? Although we do know that memories are very difficult to localize in the brain, it's something that has been sort of the holy grail of memory research. Dr. Krista McIntyre of the School of Behavioral and Brain Science at the University of Texas at Dallas is trying to unlock the impact of memories on brain and social development. I study the neurobiology of learning and memory, and I particularly focus on the consolidation of memories that are considered emotionally arousing. In order to unravel the mysteries of the human brain, Dr. McIntyre starts with an animal brain. By examining the learned responses of rats, Dr. McIntyre hopes to answer questions about the origins of memory and the longevity and power of emotionally charged memories. Take a rat and place the rat in the light compartment of a two-compartment alleyway. So one compartment is, has a very bright light above it and the other compartment is dark. And rats are nocturnal and they tend to prefer the dark, so they'll enter the dark compartment fairly quickly and we block them in there. Inside the dark end of the alley, Dr. McIntyre stimulates the first group of rats with a mild electric shock. A second group of rats is also allowed to enter the dark section, but given no electric stimulation at all. We take some animals, we put them in the light compartment, we allow them to enter the dark compartment, and they reach the end of the dark compartment and turn around, and then we just wait 10 seconds and return them to their home cage without giving them a foot shock. After the initial test, both groups of rats are returned to the alley. Those that receive no electrical stimulation quickly enter the dark. But the other group shows a very different result. After the rat received a foot shock, we returned the rat to the light compartment and we saw that he didn't enter the dark compartment. We saw that, that during the training, the rat entered the dark compartment fairly quickly after only a few seconds. But after the training, when we put the rat in the light compartment, he spent many minutes. And, and probably if we'd left him there, would spend up to 10 minutes in the light compartment. So from that, we infer that the rat has some memory of the unpleasant experience that he had in the, in the dark compartment. So this change in behavior that we see as a result of experiences is, is what we consider memory. Dr. McIntyre's results seem to suggest that the rat assigns the darkness an unpleasant memory and alters its normal behavior. In this case, the mind of a rodent is similar to the mind of the human. Pinpointing how and why a traumatic experience impacts the brain in humans may lead to one day isolating and treating these memories. There are many people who are suffering from intrusive memories that are so strong that, that they're haunting 
and debilitating. So um, ultimately, we hope that this research will help us to better understand what's going wrong when memories are stored and they're too powerful and, and too intrusive. If emotionally intense memories can have a prolonged impact on normal, healthy people, what might they do to those who show signs of aggressive behavior or psychopathy? For Andre Chikatilo, negative memories may have been part of the fuel that fired a psychotic mind. Soviet Union, 1940s. Andre Chikatilo's parents tell him that an older brother has been murdered and cannibalized during a famine. Chikatilo begins fantasizing about killing and eating people. His fantasies of consuming human flesh continue into adulthood. He finally succumbs to his desire. From 1978 to 1990, Chikatilo murders, mutilates, and in some cases cannibalizes 52 women and children. It is considered the most brutal crime spree in Soviet history. On February 15, 1994, Chikatilo is executed for his crimes. For the sheer volume of his atrocities and the brutality with which they were committed, Dr. Stone places Andre Chikatilo at number 22, the highest number on his scale. A troubling childhood memory, mental illness, these are some of the ingredients which may have driven Andre Chikatilo to murder and consume his victims. But the triggers of all cannibals are not as clear-cut. Experts wonder what drove Jeffrey Dahmer, America's most notorious cannibal. Does his murderous spree have roots in the dissolution of his family? Are memories of profound loneliness part of what drive him to kill? Milwaukee, 1978. At age 17, Dahmer's parents engage in a bitter divorce. Dahmer is left to live at home alone. Later that year, Dahmer picks up a hitchhiker and murders him. I didn't want him to leave, he later explains. From 1978 to 1991, Dahmer's spree continues. He rapes, murders, and eats at least 15 men and boys. In some cases, he stores their remains in his refrigerator. By 1991, it is estimated that he is killing one person a week. It is not until one of his intended victims is able to escape that police discover the gruesome scene at Dahmer's apartment. Investigators uncover human remains severed heads, and bodies decomposing in containers of acid. His total number of victims is unknown. Dahmer is sentenced to 937 years behind bars. After two years in prison, Dahmer is murdered by a fellow inmate. Dr. Stone reserves the highest place on his scale for Jeffrey Dahmer, for his elaborate and vicious acts of torture, rape, and murder. Like Andre Chikatilo, Jeffrey Dahmer receives a 22 on Dr. Stone's scale. 
Sacramento, 1978. A pregnant woman is savagely murdered in her home. Blood is drained from her body. One month later, three more people are discovered in a small home. Again, the bodies have been drained of blood. In some cases, organs are missing. There were so many murders in this case. They were so violent and gruesome. Police quickly pin the crimes on 27-year-old Richard Chase. He confesses to the crimes and tells investigators he had to do it. He believes he must drink the blood of others or he will die. His motive for murder? To quench a delusional thirst for blood. To the general public, the actions of Richard Chase look like those of a madman. But in his delusional state, he has convinced himself that murder and consuming blood are a very matter of survival. To understand how he becomes so intertwined with his delusion, I must explore his past. May 23, 1950. Richard Chase is born into an unhappy home in a middle-class neighborhood of Sacramento. His father is a disciplinarian, and his mother suffers from delusions. She accuses her husband of infidelity and spends hours crying. Both parents take their frustrations out on a young Richard. Chase's mother forces him to eat until he becomes violently ill. Richard begins acting out. He starts torturing and mutilating animals. He dismembers their bodies and buries the remains in the backyard. Chase shows extreme signs of pathological behavior at an early age. His blatant abuse of animals is a key indication of a deep-rooted mental disturbance. His actions as a child are a precursor to extreme violent behavior in adulthood. As an adult, Chase starts showing signs of mental illness. He abuses drugs, pushing him further into his delusions. He becomes deeply paranoid and believes people are out to harm him. Chase boards up the windows and doors of his apartment. He sees numerous psychiatrists without result. With no help in sight, Chase slowly spirals deeper into his isolated world of delusion and fantasy. Chase becomes convinced that he is being poisoned by both his mother and the Nazis. He believes the poison is dissolving the blood in his body. He begins to slaughter animals and drink their blood in order to replenish his own blood. It is a delusional attempt to sustain his own life. Fearing he will die, Chase injects rabbit's blood into his veins. He is admitted into a hospital. Doctors diagnose Chase as having schizophrenia, 
and suffering from somatic delusions. Somatic delusions focus on distortions relating to body functions, sensations, or one's physical appearance. Usually, these amount to the false belief that the sufferer is somehow diseased, abnormal, or changed. As for Richard Chase, he believes that he has been poisoned and that his blood is evaporating. Less than six months later, Chase is released. Hospital psychologists believe he is no longer a danger to himself or the community. Within days of returning home, neighbors observe Chase bringing animals into his apartment. They are never seen again. Dissecting creatures and liquefying their organs no longer alleviates Chase's bloodlust. Even some hospital employees who treated and released Chase knew what he was capable of in his search for blood. My belief was that Richard Chase now was doing things with small animals, you know, killing them, drinking their blood, and that he would graduate to larger animals and eventually to people. Among Richard Chase's delusions are voices telling him he is diseased. He is convinced Nazis are poisoning him and that his blood is dissolving. He must consume blood in order to survive. The depth of Chase's delusions, fueled by his abuse of mind-altering drugs, shows how wildly his schizophrenia-like illness had spiraled out of control. The delusions invaded every aspect of his life. Once he began to abuse the drugs, the swiftness of his mental deterioration accelerates like a runaway train. But after consuming the blood and organs of animals, his delusions persist. Chase begins hunting for new sources of blood. Chase trolls neighborhoods, looking for his first human kill. December 29, 1977. Without warning, Chase guns down a man in his front yard. Chase flees, unable to drink his victim's blood. Police do not link him to the murder until later. With voices compelling him to drink blood, Chase continues to prowl Sacramento, searching for more victims. One month later, police discover a gruesome scene. Three mutilated bodies are discovered in a small Sacramento home within the vicinity of Chase's apartment. One victim is savagely dissected and drained of her blood. She also suffers a series of violent sexual assaults before and after her death. The grisly nature of the crime shocks even veteran officers. The FBI creates a profile, white male in his mid-twenties, thin and undernourished. Police immediately receive several tips implicating Chase. Richard Chase is arrested. Chase is charged with six murders. The brutal nature of the crimes and the disturbing element of vampirism draws media outlets from across California. After several psychiatric reviews, Chase is found sane. While doctors believe schizophrenia fueled his delusions, the court determines that Chase could distinguish right from wrong. After a four-month trial, 
Chase is found guilty of six counts of first-degree murder. He is sentenced to death. Chase's mental illness, one that resembled paranoid schizophrenia, led me to place him originally at level 13. But taking into consideration the violent sexual nature of his crimes, which probably would not have occurred but for the drug abuse, lead me to place him at a higher level, 17. After less than a year in prison, Chase commits suicide by hoarding a lethal dose of his psychotherapeutic medication. Though Richard Chase was diagnosed as a schizophrenic, he didn't stay on his medication. His delusions go unchecked, delusions which are frighteningly real. There's no question that to the person experiencing delusions, they are real. Dr. Robert McCarley, director of the neuroscience laboratory of the Harvard Medical School, is trying to better understand the brains of schizophrenics. He hopes to learn how to better treat those whose delusions lead them to harm themselves or others. Why do some patients become violent? Certainly not a majority or even a, a major part of the people with schizophrenia. If your brain is disordered enough to think that people are out pursuing you, then it seems reasonable, although illogical, for you to strike out at those people. The majority of patients with schizophrenia are not violent, but in a few rare cases, like that of Richard Chase, their delusions can drive them to violent acts. What can science tell us about schizophrenic delusions? To better understand the mind of schizophrenics and determine why some have delusions that lead to violence, Dr. McCarley conducts an electrophysiological examination of the brain. Subject comes in, we put a cap on his head which has 64 electrodes on it, and then we present stimuli to the subjects. The patient has played a series of tones. Some of the tones are different than the others. The participant is asked to identify the oddball or different tones by responding with a mouse click. The subject's brain on its own generates electrical potentials, brain waves that make up the EEG. Dr. McCarley has determined that the schizophrenic brain has a harder time distinguishing the different tones. The patient's brain waves also show that there is a specific area of the brain that processes these sounds. One of the brain areas that's affected in schizophrenia is in the temporal lobe, and this is one of the main areas for processing language and for processing auditory information. According to Dr. McCarley's research, the temporal lobe may be the source of auditory hallucinations. The patient's own mind creates the delusions and hallucinations. But why can some delusions lead to violence? Though more research is needed, Dr. McCarley has a theory. Many patients with schizophrenia who abuse substances seem to be particularly prone to violence. Eustis, Florida, November 1996. 
17-year-old Jennifer Lynn Wendorf makes a shocking discovery. I need two ambulances. My mother and my father have just been killed. I just walked in the door. I don't know what happened. They are dead. The bodies of her parents have been bludgeoned beyond recognition. It is a grisly scene. Within days, police arrest a group of teens. All of them members of a vampire cult. The group's leader is a troubled and wayward 16-year-old Roderick Farrell. Without hesitation, he confesses to the brutal slayings. He shocks investigators with claims he is a vampire. Vampire cult, vampires in murder, they self-described. Made the gruesome discovery shaken. I'm thirsty for blood. Rod, is it true that you're the leader of a cult? Is that true? What drives Farrell to sadistically murder two people? Does he truly believe he is a vampire? Or is it part of a manipulative game? Farrell's claims that he is a vampire suggest a deep connection to a world of fantasy where he is all-powerful. The drive to create such an environment for oneself is often nurtured through isolation and abuse at an early age. 1980, Florida. Roderick Farrell is born to a teenage mother. His father leaves her weeks later. Farrell grows up an outcast, moving from home to home. It is a childhood characterized by instability. Later, he claims that members of his family belong to a satanic cult and that he is exposed to brutal rituals and blood sacrifice. As a lonely teenager, Farrell takes refuge in a world of fantasy. He becomes obsessed with vampires, devouring novels and playing a vampire role-playing game. It is a fantasy which holds a special power for the boy. Farrell prowls cemeteries and tells others he is an ancient soul. Farrell spreads his vampire beliefs to a loose cadre of friends and hangers-on. Like him, they are misfits. They play at being vampires and perform rituals where they drink each other's blood. What starts as a refuge from the real world takes a dangerous turn. A friend and member of the teen's vampire clan, Heather Wendorf tells Farrell that she wants to break free from her parents. It is the spark that lights the fire. On November 25th, 1996, Farrell, along with members of his clan, travel to the Wendorf home. He breaks in and discovers Richard Wendorf, Heather's father, asleep in front of the television. Farrell strikes him with a crowbar over 20 times. Farrell then strikes and stabs Heather's mother to death. Three days later, Farrell is arrested. 
he confesses to the murders and tells investigators that he derives an adrenaline rush from the killings. It's clear that for Farrell, the refuge of fantasy has crossed over into the real world with dire consequences for all involved. February 1998, the jury votes unanimously, giving Farrell the death penalty. The judge orders Farrell to the electric chair. His sentence is eventually commuted to life. Dr. Stone is on his way to meet Farrell at Union Prison in Rayford, Florida, where he is serving a life sentence. How much is Farrell willing to reveal about the true nature of his crimes? capture your feeling state, your mind state uh, at the time of the incident. My thoughts and feelings at the time of the incident, in fact for that entire time period during the course of that year, were perhaps more so elevated than your average individual to the point that it's incomprehensible to someone that could not have been there themselves. You want to know what it is to be a vampire? It equates to the life, it equates to power, it equates to the very foundation of existence. It's the communion, it's the holy wafer on the tongue, and that is what blood is to a sanguinary vampire. That's what a sanguinary vampire is, a blood feeder. How did your vampiric name come about? When I was given the name, I was uncertain as to what it meant. But after much research and study, I had come to find that Visago was, in Goetic beliefs, the, I think, ninth crowned prince of hell. And his offices were seen into the future, the past, the present, and finding things lost, so forth and so on. However, I think that that did more damage than good. Many people have associated me with Satanism, and I have to say that although I hold nothing against the Satanic beliefs or the people that practice them, I have personally never been involved in such activities or beliefs. Vampirism is not Satanism. They are two separate things. Can you explain to me what feedings entailed? Feedings, be it between vampires or between donors, uh, usually consists of either biting, blades, perhaps uh, syringes on occasion, and taking the blood from one individual to mingle it with another. It is one individual 
literally being trusted enough or loved enough to open that other person's flesh and seek out their most prized possession, the very core of themselves, which would be, in vampiric belief, their blood. At which point, ingesting it, taking that other person into themselves, shows, I suppose, a love for the other individual too, the victim. However, sometimes sanguinary vampires, the blood feeders, many times actually, will go beyond that belief and look at the fact that it's the core essence of a being. It's, for them, food. And sometimes, again, that can be taken out of context like many things can in pretty much anything in life. And how does one become a sanguinary vampire? Is there a special ritual? Uh, crossing over, also known as the embrace, is the point where someone comes from the mundane society of being a regular individual and then is accepted into a vampiric family. It's much like a regular feeding. It's taking the blood of the one who is to come into the family and drinking it. And you feed the person that is to enter into the family your blood. Their blood is effectively mingled into the family's blood. And at that point, the vampiric blood basically overtakes their being and they become part of the family. I embraced many individuals. Heather was among one that I allowed the embrace to take place on. Do you have any uh, thoughts now looking back on your life as to what may have nudged you in the direction of the bad side or the darker side? I've had over a decade to reflect upon my entire life. I would have to say that the allure of the vampiric living can involve a compensation in sorts of perhaps People, people's pasts, individual hurts. It is a way not so much to mend the scars as to cover them for some. I'm speaking about the things people said that happened to you, were done to you when you were very small. By the Black Mass, which is a dark occultic group. Even from your own grandfather is what I'm talking about. I would rather not go into that, Doctor. That's precisely my point. There are many adults, far more than most people would expect out in your society, that do prey upon young individuals and they rape them, they murder them, or in their case, sacrifice, and any other number of uncouth, callous, and preferably unmentioned things. Are you still attracted to the life of vampirism? Wow, that's a large question. Um, the vampiric way of living 
is dark, seductive. In some cases, you do gain senses of power and power of being. Uh, there's just so much that drives that world, and it is a very... There is really no other word other than seductive world. Because it's like your darkest fantasy, your deepest, most hidden heart's desire. That's what the world consists of, of a vampire. To know that you are, to some people less than man, and to others perhaps more than man, is also a seduction to become past the norm of existence, to push the envelope and break the boundaries. Vampirism plays its part in my life as it ever has. It is impossible to determine whether Farrell truly believes in his claims of vampirism or not but he continues to express an attraction for them more than 10 years after the crime. He shows little regard for the impact the crimes had on the families of the victims, nothing to say of the severity and brutality of the murders themselves. I place him at number 10 on my scale for egocentric, psychopathic killers. Cannibals and Vampires Motivated by fantasy, desire, and delusions, these brutal murderers commit some of the most terrifying crimes. By uncovering the world of murderers who not only kill, but consume their victims, Dr. Stone is continuing his quest to understand and quantify those who are most evil. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.